Hey, it's Nate here, CEO of Powder Blue Media and creator and editor-in-chief of Unplugged. I want to talk to you about our Patreon account we recently set up. Now, if you're familiar with our brand, you know we're all about setting a high bar for quality content and always ensuring we clear that bar. In doing so, we believe that clicks and views should never be a priority, which is why we're strictly against featuring advertising on our website. Now, that being said, if you like what we're doing and want to support us, consider becoming a patron for as cheap as $1 a month. Depending on the tier you select, you get access to exclusive content, limited drops, special promotions, and more. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash unplugged. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash unplugged. That's U-N-P-L-U-G-G-D. So far, we want to thank, in order, Amelia, my sister, Andrew Parkinson, Connor Blodger, Drake Weissman, Drew Wanslack, Elisa, my mom, Ethan Markowitz, Jacob Graber Lipperman, my brother, <laughs> Jacob Newman, Leslie Lido, Naomi Perry, Sam Kim, Sheila Cagle, Sheridan Claiborne, Thomas Parkinson, and Vicky Woodburn for signing up as patrons. And yeah, on to the show. Welcome back to the GL Review. Thanks to freestyle rapping legend Sam I Am the MC for that awesome intro theme. You can follow along with his work at Sam I Am the MC on Twitter and Instagram. For now, though, I'm Nathan Graber Lipperman, creator and editor in chief of Unplugged, as well as the CEO of Powder Blue Media, our media startup brand out of Northwestern's very own incubator, The Garage. Every Wednesday, I'm bringing you guest interviews and pop culture panelists, as well as covering some of my more eclectic interests, such as streetwear, entrepreneurship, and ultimate frisbee. On this episode, I'm bringing on the Parkinson Brothers, the co-founders of Peapod, the food delivery service. Now, I met Andrew and Thomas through the garage, just like I meet everybody, and after connecting, they've become our go-to weekly mentors. It's been great checking in with them and picking their brains a little bit as coming from much different backgrounds than us. Andrew kind of being an econ business guy, Thomas being a design tech guy. They have much different approaches to what we're doing. Also, in becoming grand poobas and supporting us on Patreon, well, I guess my hands were tied and I was forced to have them on the pod. But in all seriousness, though, these guys are really cool and have a ton of great experience and advice. I think you'll find their stories to be both hilarious and valuable. Before we get into it, though, recently on the podcast, I've been kind of talking about our uh, journey through Unplugged and what we've been up to and some thoughts along the way. So two weeks ago, I talked to you about the benefits of taking time off from a venture as I went and explored Chicago over July 4th weekend and had a blast. But last week, well, I didn't get a podcast out because we were in the midst of a really busy run. Our focus the last two weeks was on setting up a Patreon account in order to test what we believe to be our MVP. So what's a Patreon and what's an MVP? Let's start with the latter. An MVP can mean most valuable player, of course, but it also stands for a minimum viable product. When it comes to a startup, product design is arguably the most important thing other than, say, revenue. This means you want to take your time and do it right. 
Well, unfortunately, even if you're not paying yourself, time can equal money. And when you go to pitch to your investors, they want to see what you're working with. An MVP is essentially a representation of how your product works and some of the steps you're taking in the near future to complete it. It can be high fidelity, which is more of a close representation to the final product, or low fidelity, which is nowhere near the final product. But in the end, you really just want to showcase your idea and make it closer to a reality. One thing with MVPs, though, is that it's all and well to have one, but you really need to test it. Because people will say they'll buy your product, sure, but you don't know for certain until they lay down physical money. For us, we always viewed the Unplugged website as it currently stands as a living, breathing, high-fidelity MVP. And finally, for the last two weeks, we tested it. We set up a Patreon account, which is essentially a platform for people to support creators, and brought in 17 patrons, now up to $141 a month. So, I mean, for something we've been working really hard on for quite some time now, it was really awesome to dig down and finally test the MVP. And of course, bringing in money always feels good. <laughs> but, oh yeah, and another thing, in talking to you all, the fans, we realized that the website was the most important thing to people consuming our content. That's why I'm excited to announce that we have a brand new website coming out really soon. Shout out to Kareem Nirani for putting in a lot of hard work making it into reality. We can't wait to share it with you, so make sure to follow along on Twitter and Instagram at Unplugged, U-N-P-L-U-G-G underscore D, as we continue to post updates. For now, new things on the site. <clears throat> Excuse me. We got Whistles, episode three, featuring Alex Spanos and Matt Flannery. I gotta say, this show has been a really entertaining ride thus far, but this episode's guests might have been the funniest ones Jeremy and co. have invited on so far. Definitely go check that one out. I also wrote a piece on the website on my experience traveling to the Hypebeast Coachella, otherwise known as ComplexCon. A lot of media companies are doing these experiential events nowadays, and for Complex, last year's event raked in over $30 million from retail alone, which accounted for 10% of their total annual revenue. It was definitely interesting exploring that from a media perspective and met some really cool people such as Mosh and Lena Waithe. Anyway, too, the What's Up crew is running their very own bracket, the fictional world bracket, determining what worlds from Harry Potter to Star Wars to the MCU would be the best to live in. And finally, Kareem wrote a great piece on the future of entertainment and the divide between story and spectacle. There's even more great stuff on the site. Shout out to our contributors for working really hard, doing an awesome job. You can log on and check it all out at up.powderbluemedia.com. As always, you can follow me on Twitter at ByNatriel, and again, you can follow Unplugged at Unplugged, that's U-N-P-L-U-G-G underscore D. And yeah, that about wraps it up for me. Here's the Parkinson Brothers. I'm joined today by Andrew and Thomas Parkinson, the Parkinson Brothers, and now you guys are the ones who invented, what was it called again, the iPod? Or It was originally called the iPod <laughs> <laughs> for information and product on demand. Right. And then there's a story to that. Um, yeah, I mean, let's dive into it. Let's go. So, I mean, obviously, a different iPod emerged down the road. I've heard you guys telling the story, but, um, you know, what would have happened if you took that copyright? Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, what really happened, so years ago, before we thought about um, Peapod, we were, we were going to have a, um, a company that sold a boat called a Peapod. Um, and, then, you know, we talked about that a bit, and then that idea didn't really happen. But it was always kind of in the back of my mind. And then my brother Andrew came up with, when we were starting Peapod, it was called iPod. Mm -hmm. And uh, as he said, information product on demand. And as we were getting our business cards over at the Kinko's here at 
right in Northwestern, where the uh, Burger King is. Really? <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, we were just getting the cards because we had a meeting with, um, with somebody, and I said, you know, iPod's a really stupid name. Maybe we <laughs> should, like, use that name Peapod. It's got... It's like a vegetable grocery stores kind of stuff, and then it goes sounds good. <laughs> yeah, so and an iPod came from Parkinson Products. So when we were kids, mm -hmm. we started a business called Parkinson Products, um, and so uh, P P O D for Parkinson Products is where we got Peapod. Mm -hmm. And then um, what we did when we were young, we started a couple. Thomas's, I think he mentioned last night. When he was doing the Shark Tank, uh, you know, had a chicken, had chickens and sold eggs. Um, we always were selling stuff. First product that we introduced in college was something called the keg carrier, <laughs> which back then it was very hard to lift kegs, right? Because they didn't have the handles. My and parents have informed me. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're asking me like uh, earlier this summer. It's like. Do college kids do, do still do kegs? Like, is that a thing? I'm like, like, how do you want me to answer this? Like, I guess so. <laughs> yeah, so kegs, back then, kegs would get, um, they would perspire. They'd get mm -hmm. really wet, and there were no handles. So when you carried them up steps, uh, frequently they'd slip and come tumbling down on you. Mm -hmm. So we invented this thing that had basically a pole with bicycle grips and clamps that would clamp the keg, and you could carry it up anything, up or down. <laughs> So we started selling that. We sold it to fraternities on the East Coast. Um, and that was kind of our first product. And then launched a t-shirt business inside the fraternity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I, um, we both went to Wesleyan University in yeah. Connecticut, and it had an identity problem. Uh, everyone confused it with all these other Wesleyans around the country. So I came up with this t-shirt that said Wesleyan not, and it listed all the different Wesleyans, <laughs> and it's not an all-woman's school outside of Boston. Right. Um, and so well, actually, you first said it's not an all-girls school, but we had to switch it to an, it's not an all-women's school. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I sold a lot of those to the alumni, right. and then I took that, and then I started a whole t-shirt business where I printed, I was the guy that printed all the shirts mm -hmm. on campus, and it was based in our fraternity, and I used up hundreds and hundreds of hours of electricity <laughs> with my uh, electric dryer. Yeah. <laughs> they were always chasing after me after they pay the bill. Um, and then we have one other product um, called Pure uh, Nuclear Waste in a Can. It was kind of like a pet rock. <laughs> and so it was like in a soda can. It said, you know, pure canned nuclear waste. And uh, my brother and I went <laughs> went into New York City with a whole bunch of these and with a with a metal detector, and we were on the street trying to sell these things. Well, <laughs> we're it, pretending the metal detector was a Geiger counter. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And we put on trench coats and stood on the corner, <laughs> <laughs> something like uh, Madison and 34th or something, and people were, like, running away from us. <laughs> so that was our first uh, lesson in marketing. Yeah, we didn't <laughs> sell one of them. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we learned that, like, don't try to sell things that scare people. Right. <laughs> that's that's interesting because there's a there's this essay I read recently about like uh, don't do things that scale is like the premise of it. It's like this interesting thing where it's like, you know, how many launches do you actually remember of things, right? It's like, sure, like a lot of things launch un with not a lot of glory, but it's like they further, you know, they keep building, they keep building, growing fans and then become something big. But one of the things I talked about with do things that don't scale is it's like, you know, going and like meeting people. It's like if you're a media company, giving people a magazine and stuff. So you guys did that. It's just that you scared people away as opposed to enticing. <laughs> <Right>. them. <laughs> well, we, we couldn't even give it away. Yeah. <laughs> I have one on my shelf in my office, though. Yeah. Um, 
I do think it's interesting you bring up the uh, t-shirts as well because I think you're the third or fourth person I've talked to that uh, ran a t-shirt business in some capacity and went on to do the entrepreneurial lifestyle. And uh, I bring that up too because I I started a t-shirt business in high school as well. And it's like, I feel like, you know, you understand the grit and grind that goes into screen printing and uh, what have you. But yeah, do do you think there's any correlation there that like, I mean, you guys just sound like, and from what I've read, you've always been interested in building products and uh, selling them. But uh, is there anything about t-shirts specifically that you know th- speaks to the entrepreneurial lifestyle? Well, I think um, what t-shirts allows you to do is be really creative w- with what's on the t-shirt. So it's always like a piece of art, and I think <laughs> that that is why certain people really love to sell shirts. And you know, I came up with the original shirt for the Wesleyan, but. Um, that just sort of started this whole thing. Wow, like I can just come up with these designs and put them on shirts and sell them. So mm-hmm. I don't know. It's just something. It's, it, it opens up your creative, um, but it's certainly not a great business to be in in terms of making money because there are right. all these other people that are they're mm-hmm. undercutting you. Yeah. Um, so I learned a lot about business. You know, <laughs> how I would never do t-shirts again. So yeah. yeah. The interestingly, since you're a runner, the first t-shirt we sold was at yeah. the Boston Marathon. And we had a um, picture of a guy breaking through the wall, you know, mm-hmm. the wall at, I think, uh, Heartbreak Hill or wherever. Okay. I think it's at your 20th mile or whatever. Yeah. You hit the wall in a marathon. And uh, anyway, we, we, I think we had like 50 copies made, not knowing if they're going to sell. And we sold all 50 in like 20 minutes. Oh, we, it was like 2,000. Oh, is that many? Yeah, yeah. Oh, we sold a lot of shirts really quickly. <laughs> yeah. So it, it was a good introduction to, hey, if you have a product people want, uh, you can sell them, right? And um, but t-shirts, as Thomas said, it's competitive. The margins aren't great, um, and it's you know, so it's a long slog. But it's I like, think it's a good way to get your feet wet. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's and, a good way to say it. And yeah. I mean, people that are doing it, are guys like you and us that like the sport of business. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what to us it's all about. It's fun. It's like we love sports and we also love business because every day it's a new decision. You have to overcome problems. And it's just fun. Yeah, the main thing I learned in high school is that high schoolers are cheap. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> it was always really hard because it was like I tried getting money up front, but you know, when you're doing all the designs and whatnot, people are always gonna, uh, you know, it's like, hey, can you do this design? Actually, can you change it? Actually, can you change it? And then you know, ten hours later, it's like, actually, I'm not gonna buy it. And it's like, God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> well, wait till you try to sell the grocery retailers. Yeah, <laughs> talk about cheap. <laughs> I'm, t- <laughs> I'm sure you guys don't have any experience with that, but no. Um, so before we get into you know Peapod so much, I mean, so you guys seem to be a package deal everywhere you go. You know, it's like it's the Parkinson Bros. Andrew's the business guy, Thomas is the tech guy, and that's how you guys naturally split up the work, and that's why you love it. And now that also goes through uh, with college. Now you both attended Wesleyan for undergrad. Uh, two years apart. Uh, Thomas, you studied bachelor's in fine and studio arts yep. and uh, Andrew, a bachelor in economics. Uh, I mean, look, for, from the sound of it, it's like you guys just always had this chemistry from the get-go and you always saw yourselves working with each other. And what, what do you attribute to that natural chemistry? I think trust is really important and we don't duplicate effort when we don't have to. So we know what we know what each of us is responsible for, and we trust that that's going to happen. And like, I have no aspirations. This is Thomas talking. I have no aspirations to kind of do what my brother's doing. Like, I've always been happy with him being the president. Mm-hmm. That's great. Um, but really, we just the, the duties are divided, and we just leverage our skills. I think when you hear about 
siblings that work together, if they're together just for comfort, I think that's going to fail. But mm-hmm. if you're if you're chocolate and peanut butter, I think you know you have success. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's always amazing to me actually the entrepreneurs that do it by themselves, because mm-hmm. small business starting a business, as you know, is <laughs> it's really hard. Yeah, um, and there's so much to do to be successful, and so much of it is about not giving up and just getting through the down periods. But when you can depend on each other to do what they do well, um, and you don't have to do everything or manage everything, I think your likelihood for success is much greater. Mm-hmm. So I think that's what we've found. We've been lucky in some ways to be working together. And uh, you know we've had a few businesses that have made it because we don't try to do everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, there, there, were, there have been several moments in the history of us at Peapod where we were lying on our backs in the room when things were going really bad. Mm -hmm. Um, Especially there was one point where it was during the dot-com bust in 2000 where we were out of money and we were about to close the doors and my brother and I are lying on the floor going, what are we going to do here? And he goes, "Um, you make sure everyone stays at the company and keep the company running. I'll go find the money. And that was just like a great example how like we just had to separate duties in order to save the company. Mm Mm-hmm. So you guys, like, literally lying on the floor, like sardines in a can, kind of? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Dang. So is, it, is this, like, late 90s or so, or is this? That would have been 2000. Oh, it was 2000. Yeah, we had moments like that earlier when we were right. running out of money. I mean, there were many times when it was a close call. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, going right into Peapod now, I, I read on LinkedIn, um, Andrew, your LinkedIn, that so you were a member of the U.S. board sailing team. You traveled and competed in the Olympics, right? Or was it? I was Olympic? on the U.S. board sailing team. You're on the but team. I, I actually didn't go to the Olympics. Okay, gotcha. Um, yeah, the only one person goes. Mm-hmm. Oh, that would yeah. make sense. <laughs> but um, I mean, you were traveling around, right, and uh, practicing with the team and whatnot. And that's kind of where you came up with the idea for Peapod, or you developed the business plan for well, it. First, it came up with the name for the board. You know, we were selling what they called Division Two right, boards, yeah, yeah. one design. And um, because we had a business called Parkinson Products, I decided to call that board uh, Parkinson Products One Design mm-hmm. or PPOD. And I said, "Oh, let's call it Peapod." And then Thomas told the story how we went from when we formed Peapod, it was iPod originally for yeah. information and product on demand, and then um, we changed the name to Peapod. But while I was doing that campaign, which was a couple of years, like it was for the 1988 Olympics, mm-hmm. I was writing the business plan for Peapod. And the original business plan was more like uh, what AOL and what Google became. Um, I had mm-hmm. worked at Procter & Gamble in, in brand management marketing, um, and then at Kraft Foods for probably seven years total. Saw how uh, consumer product companies spent a lot of money, terrific amount mm-hmm. of money on advertising. I also had saw research that said a lot of people, 70, 75% dislike shopping for groceries. Mm-hmm. Yep. So the original concept for Peapod was to provide an interface that would people would come to to buy their groceries as well as get information. Um, and then we would be able to sell advertising at the point of decision when people were actually buying groceries. Now, of course, this was 1988, 89, and the internet didn't exist at that point. So... When we started, we had to, and this was where Thomas came in, we had to, you know, write our own DOS-based 
interface, which actually had advertising back then. Um, so you could search on Pepsi and there'd be a Coke ad where mm -hmm. you could get 50 cents off Coke. And, um, but we kind of, we were a little bit ahead, I guess, of ourselves because there were very few modems, I think maybe three to 5% of homes that even had modems. Mm -hmm. And we, you had to get a disc from us in order to be able to log on. Um, it's a different time. Yeah. <laughs> and there's some funny parts there. That's where we started in the incubator in mm -hmm. Northwestern. And we're very thankful to them because one, we, we used to always borrow their dried ice for the grocery deliveries to keep okay. things cold. But more importantly, we used their mainframe because back then it, it was just when AT or XT computers were coming out, DOS-based computers. Um, and we had to translate the the data from like Jewel Foods, who we started with, all of their pricing data, what products are available on the mainframe here at Northwestern to put into onto our AT Dell computer, yeah, yeah, yeah. run with... Uh, uh, you know, like five or six modems um, on a wine rack from Crate and Barrel. It was basically our data center. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was a funny story, actually, because um, when we'd been operating for about a year, um, IBM approached us because they had this service called Prodigy, and they wanted to offer grocery shopping on Prodigy. So they visited us to talk about how we, they could put Peapod onto Prodigy, and they you know, they were all in suits and everything, and, you know, they said, hey, can we visit your data center? And I'm like, oh, no, 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 no one can visit our data center, because it was a crate and barrel wine rack with our modems and a Dell 386 computer on my desk running right. the whole service, and their prodigy was running on mainframe, so it just, we didn't want them to know. <laughs> Which was incredible, too, because ours, because ours was ASCII-based, mm -hmm. um, and theirs was a protocol called Maplips. Yeah. Ours was five times faster. <laughs> right. So they were like, so you could go into Peapod and you could sort uh, by unit price or by what's on sale, you know, from the start. Yeah. And uh, it was incredibly fast. And so they couldn't figure it out. <laughs> so you outdid them essentially. Yeah. <laughs> I think they actually offered to buy us. Um, but we, we were too naive to sell at that point. <laughs> I didn't know about that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Breaking news. <laughs> well, I think they offered us like $50,000. Oh, oh, okay. All right. Yeah. And how, how big was IBM at that point? Because that was right when, you know, I know like my grandma and my uncle have worked for IBM for years. Uh, yeah. But. So that was 89 because I had the first IBM, I had VisiCalc, which was the Excel of today mm. on an IBM computer, right? And then um, that was 83, 84, and they were the biggest. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, Microsoft and, uh, you know, the other guys were very small, yeah. you know, at that point. So, so for, for them to come and, you know, be aware of you guys, and even if the, you know, some lump sum wasn't exactly what you were looking for, but even be aware and come was pretty impressive, right? Yeah, I forget in. how they found out about us. Um, I think there was somebody that was up, like a professor here at Northwestern or something that, because mm -hmm. our first customers were all Northwestern right, professors, yeah. they all had modems <laughs> because they were on the, you know, the university system. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm sure one of them had a connection there or something. I don't know. I don't remember really. Yeah. Remember. Oh, a, f a funny story <laughs> about being in the incubator is before, before we started Peapod um, and went into the incubator, I wanted to learn about delivery. Mm -hmm. uh, so I... Uh, delivered for the Domino's Pizza here okay. in, in South Evanston. And I delivered to all the students mm -hmm. at, here on campus. And so one time, a couple ordered a pizza. And um, I, get up, I get up to their room, and you think it was like, I think 10-minute delivery or something like that. It's like really fast delivery. But I get up to their room, and the door's a little bit ajar. 
So I knock and kind of push it open, and there they are in their bed going at it. <laughs> and I'm thinking, <laughs> you couldn't wait 20 minutes from when you ordered this pizza? <laughs> but then they, there was an article in the Northwestern paper about this crazy Domino's delivery guy <laughs> that all he did was talk about logistics and, and delivery well, time. Because the, the Northwestern student jumped in the car with you yes. and, and was, was driving on some of the deliveries, and you're starting to talk to him how like you interviewed at IBM. And you get, he's thinking you're just like the Domino's pizza guy, not like the former executive at Kraft. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, but it's funny because it was before Peapot, before we launched. Yeah. And uh, it was actually in the Northwestern paper here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I actually the have daily, that. Yeah. I still have that clipping. I have a, Yeah, I have <laughs> That's great. Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, one of the questions I came with, I had mentioned the book Shoe Dog before, and uh, Andrew had said he read it, but uh, the the whole thing with Nike, you know, the Bill Bowerman, uh, Phil Knight's original track coach, he, he made the sneakers in his wife's waffle iron and ruined the waffle iron. And then they sold it out of the back of Phil Knight's truck and whatnot. And I was kind of going to ask you like, guys, do you have any like waffle iron esque stories? You know, do you have any crazy, like had to drive around town with the dry ice and the cabbage and like, make sure it was refrigerated enough and get it to the person. And if you didn't do it, the whole company would explode. You know, it seems like you guys have a lot of those, but I mean, I don't know. In kind of this like expansive period in the nineties or like early nineties, what would you say? Like, is there any one thing that sticks out to you the most? Well, I mean, one of the things was remember that a lot of people didn't have modems. Mm -hmm. And so the cheaper modem was to get a modem that you actually had to in insert into your computer, like take the cover off and stick it into the board, you know, stick the board into the motherboard. And so I had to go to many, many people's houses install the modems probably i'd say i probably did 500 installations in in this neighborhood mm -hmm. and uh, there were many, many times when you would plug that thing in and you turn the person's computer on and the computer wouldn't boot back up <laughs> 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 and the person's standing right behind you and you know you're just sweating like oh my god <laughs> did i just destroy this person's computer but i mean there's just like that was the block and tackling to like get somebody onto peapot i had mm -hmm. to go to their house install the modem and show them how to use it mm -hmm. um you know there was one lady called and said that the foot pedal wasn't working i'm like the foot pedal, the foot pedal. <laughs> uh foot pedal she goes yeah yeah it's this thing it's attached to my computer and it's like oh man that's a mouse um, <laughs> you, <yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> so i mean but we i was a delivery guy for like two years um at the start so i mean there's a lot of funny stories that mm -hmm. I encountered. Um, oh, yeah. The delivery. One, one of the funny stories, too, was when we first started, we went out to New York mm -hmm. to write the original demo program. And then we actually got a meeting with Dominic's, which food, which mm -hmm. was, you know, here before Mariano's basically right. bought them. Um, but we had our first meeting because we needed to hook up with a grocer to sell their products. Mm -hmm. um, so we finished the code, the demo and we had to jump in the car uh, because it was the next morning and it's like a 14 hour drive. So we're driving on Route 80, going about 70 miles an hour in our, in Thomas's- uh, Honda Civic. Honda Civic, which is a really small car. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden a deer steps out in front of us and I didn't <laughs> see it. I mean, so smash, the whole car gets, the front of the car gets caved in, the deer's all over, the blood's all over the car. The cop comes, you know, and all he wanted was whether he had the right to take the deer home and eat it. But so we took a crowbar, but we had to get the Dominic's the next morning. So we took a crowbar, we 
pulled out the front of the car so it wasn't hitting the fan belt anymore. Mm-hmm. And we get we get to like five miles, like seven a.m. And I think it was an eight a.m. meeting. Mm-hmm. Get to a rest stop, you know, put on our suits. And uh, back then there were no laptops, so it was a it was a big computer we had to take to the uh, into the meeting. So we got out of the car, which was covered in blood and fur. <laughs> Take into the meeting, have a successful meeting. The guys say, yeah, we're very interested. We'd like to do this, but can I help you take your computer out to your car? <laughs> so the guy carries the computer with us, and then we had forgotten, and he comes out, and here he sees his car just completely <laughs> covered in fur and blood. <laughs> yeah, I don't think he gave him a lot of confidence. Hmm. <laughs> These guys, uh, wonder, uh, they don't look very well financed. <laughs> That's, I mean, that's, that's a story right there. That's more than I bargained for. And, uh, I mean, as you said, you know, when you sell the movie rights, got to write the book first, of course. But those are the kind of things that really stick out along the way, you know. Yeah, there was one other uh, delivery story that was funny. I, I was shaving really quickly because I was the delivery guy that day. It was the middle of the winter. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, we were staging outside in a van. Um, so, anyway, I take the uh, – I deliver – to this woman in Evanston, and she she comes to the door and goes, stares at me, and goes, "Oh my God, are you okay?" And I thought she was just, yeah. I said, "Oh yeah, I'm doing I'm doing great." Deliver her groceries, and I come back to the uh, delivery van, and John Furton, our 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 first of ops, yeah, and also one of the really one of the we consider a founder, looks at me and goes, "Oh my God, what happened?" And I said, "What do you mean?" He goes, "What? Well, you have blood dri- dripping down your whole front." <laughs> And I, so, and he goes, gosh, I guess the competition must be cutthroat. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Um, but yeah, no, always, always those great stories from, you know, just the origins really hustling to make it happen. But I mean, so between 97 and 2000, you all start expanding into Boston, Massachusetts, uh, New York, Norwalk, Connecticut as well, and even add like DC, Philadelphia, just really expanding into markets. And um, in 2001, uh, you get completely bought out, the entire company. Now, of course, after 2000, when 51% is sold. But, um, you know, what was that like as entrepreneurs, as original founders? Uh, there's always the want to really grip onto it and to really maintain as much control as possible. But, um, you know, what was that process like really drawing that attention as a real company at that point? Yeah, I mean, it's always it's always hard um, mm-hmm. when suddenly there's another company that basically can sort of tell you what to do. But I have to say the company that bought us, Ahold, was pretty good about um, allowing us to stay entrepreneurial. Um, you know, it, and it, it was a Dutch company. And so the way the Dutch operate is, you know, they're used to operating in foreign countries and so as long as you're hitting your numbers and doing a good job, they're sort of hands off. Um, but um, if you don't, then, you know, the help arrives. Um, I think the tough part is we, a new CEO came in for Andrew at that mm-hmm. point when they joined. So Andrew became the CFO. I think you had three times that you went from being president to some yeah. other position. And then that person <laughs> crashed and burned. And then you took over again. And then another one came in. They crashed and burned. And you took over again. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'd say I'd say it was probably harder for Andrew than it was for me because I just kept focused on the business and building out all the tech and and everything. But I don't know what's your what's your take, Andrew? Well, first of all, that's what I respect about that shoe dog book. Mm-hmm. What Phil Knight did really was able to main, maintain control mm-hmm. and how he 
you know, he took a long approach, and uh, there are a lot of tough years to get there. I think what happened, we got over our skis a little bit too fast. You know, we went public in 97, uh, raised a bunch of money, but didn't have a f model that was fully profitable at that point. Um, and I think there's a lot to learn from that for all these delivery companies that are happening today because they're basically all following the same model that we were doing back then, picking out of stores. Um, and we had just converted over to warehouses where we were starting to make money. And we finally did learn how to make money. But when we went public, we really hadn't fully figured out the model. Mm -hmm. um, um, when we ran into our financial trouble, it was because we had figured out the model and we were making money, but we wanted to expand um, faster and build more warehouses, go into Texas, California, we were, we were in there. And, um, you know, when we, we were spending money ahead of our, our profitability, really, or our cash flow. So when we had the, didn't raise the money as quickly as we thought, that put us in pressure where we had to sell um, to to hold. And as Thomas said, Ahold was is a great partner. But mm -hmm. as an entrepreneur, um, it's you like to you like to be in control. Mm -hmm. And the, when you're not in control anymore, it's just harder because your natural tendency is to want to call the shots and um, not that that. We don't want to delegate, though, because I'm a total believer in there's many people that are much smarter, much better mm -hmm. at all the different roles. But um, you want to be in the game because it's a sport. Mm -hmm. And uh, when you're getting taken out of the game because others who aren't as knowledgeable are telling you, you to do things that you don't really believe are right, that, that makes it tough. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'd say there's some positives, though, you know, when you're an entrepreneur. The ups and downs, are you going to get a paycheck? What's a 401k? Never heard of it. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, the, the stress that was always there. So when we get bought, suddenly you get a pay increase. You're on the 401k. You get great medical benefits. Mm -hmm. And people ask me, well, why, you know, how come you lasted so long at Peapod? It's like, well, you know, when you're an entrepreneur and your family's stressed out that, that you're not sure you're going to bring home any money, you, you take the easier route sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's nothing wrong with being in a company and, you know, having a, a regular job, mm -hmm. um, especially when it lets you do the creative things you want to do. Um, you may not have the upside that you had when you was your own company, but certainly stability when you've got young kids is is really important. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, it's 20 years later, uh, kind of fast forward into the present a little bit. If, if you could kind of look back on it, would you have done it the same way? I would have been an investment banker. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. But I mean, it's a long route. You know, I right. would say it takes longer for every entrepreneur than, the, than they think it's going to take. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I would have, I definitely would have launched Peapod and jumped in. I think I would have taken it a little slower in terms of how we financed it and um, taken losses mm -hmm. as opposed to build it um, kind of locally and then expand regionally and then expand nationally. That, you know, one of the funny stories is that when we started, my mom was a librarian, so she knew a lot about books. And when we first came up with the idea, I thought groceries would be good because it's a frequently purchased item because the model was to be advertising. Mm. Um, and CBG spent a lot on advertising. But we did, we went to my mom and said, mom, well, rather than groceries, maybe we should sell books. 
<laughs> she said, no, 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 there's no money in books because the margins were, were pretty right. slim. But I uh, kind of regret that. So, <laughs> we so might have started. Apple and uh, Amazon. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. But um, I think we were just, I mean, I guess one lesson for me is it's like I don't want to create uh, a technology for a business anymore. I, I want it to be established and work in an ecosystem that already exists. I mean, we mm -hmm. were inventing e-commerce. I mean, so many of the things we did, we invented, you know, I could show you all the pictures of it, <laughs> you know. Um, but to to be the, the leader is really difficult. Um, and so, I, you know, that I think we were too early for it. I think we were way too early. Um, but we've learned. And, you know, <laughs> there are things that we're working on now that, um, you know, it's taking advantage of what exists today and what customers are comfortable with today. But if you think that I had to install modems into people's computers. Right. You know. But the opposite side of the financing, too, though, is that I guess we raised a lot less money than the web vans of the world. So we're still around. Yeah. Even though oh, yeah. we were a pioneer and most pioneers get arrows in the back, we were able to get through it, whether it was you know, raising money going public or selling to Ahold. But the fact that Peapod's still around um, probably is a testament to the fact that we didn't just burn through a billion dollars, mm -hmm. I think, is what Webvan burned through right. because we were restricted on what we could uh, burn and therefore had to be a lot more um, careful about how we spent our money. You didn't take out any, like, Super Bowl commercials? No. Well, actually, yeah, we, we did. <laughs> really? No, we <laughs> didn't pay for it, though. It was uh, Ameritech. Um, it was the local um, telecom company, telephone company. They'd, it's actually on YouTube if you want really? to see it. But, yeah, it's these two guys in a um, ice hut fishing and, the guy says, I'm hungry, and he pulls, this other guy pulls out a laptop and says, oh, let me just order some Peapod. <laughs> I forget what year that was. It was, like, in the 90s, though. 96, 97, yeah, yeah. something like that. Yeah, yeah. so it was uh, a Super Bowl ad, though. Yeah, that's pretty cool. <laughs> hey, you, you got that on your, you put that on your LinkedIn. Yeah, you know, I should. <laughs> on your resume. But I tell you, it's like, like, the one thing I'm just, I get jazzed every day when I see a Peapod truck. Mm -hmm. uh, it just, just makes me proud. Mm -hmm. Um. So, you know, and there's quite a few around here that you see in Evanston all the time, I'm sure. Right. You know, I see them everywhere. So um, we always wanted our kids to drive Peapod trucks. <laughs> yeah. They're doing better. <laughs> <laughs> no, and I see you guys still repping the, the clothing as well. It's definitely a point of pride. Uh -huh. um, before I kind of, you know, shift towards your current venture with Sifter, um, I do have to kind of reflect on Peapod a little bit more. So, um just raise the question. So when you guys shop for groceries, you must use Amazon, right? <laughs> 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 but um, in all seriousness, you know, in the age of things like Postmates and Uber Eats and also Amazon just being so present um, in everything, you know, how has Peapod survived? And would you say it's thriving? And like, where do you see it uh, continuing uh, to do so moving forwards? I mean, primarily, I think we survived because we were making money. Mm -hmm. um, versus almost all of these others are venture-backed, and they're just burning through venture dollars, as far as I can tell. Uh, we were just talking to someone yesterday about Postmates and how it's a disaster in terms right. of per-order profitability. Mm -hmm. um, so we got not only to per-order profitability, we got to EBIT profitability, meaning after all overhead and depreciation. Uh, I don't think anyone's achieved that in, yeah. in the online grocery delivery business. But that helped us survive, and I think that's why we're still around. It'll be interesting to see, ultimately, what happens. Um, ways to make money, though, like an Instacart, maybe they can make it through 
advertising because they get a big enough customer base. Mm -hmm. But I can almost guarantee you none of these guys are making it through the profitability of the order. And a lot of the crowdsourcing companies are the same. Um, they're all struggling because their labor costs are just so much higher right. than their margins. Right. I mean, here, I mean, w what happens is like Peapod is a next day delivery. So you order and then we, we pick it and then we deliver it the next day. So that, that gives you uh, very, very efficient because mm -hmm. you can batch huge amounts of volume. Instacart is same day. So you can order it and someone runs into a store, picks it and runs over to your house. But that doesn't scale. Mm -hmm. So at some point, their success kills them because that's what we used to do. We used to shop in the store. And what do you get? You get 10% of the products are out of stock. You get really bad quality produce. You've got like just some person off the street picking it, making mistakes. The quality is really bad. But that's hard to advertise. You know, that's hard. like how do you say that in an ad? So we actually saw a sales dip at Peapod when all these services came out. Mm -hmm. but it's coming back. Mm -hmm. And what we hear from our drivers is that um, their, their customer says, yeah, I tried Instacart, yeah, I tried that, but not the quality isn't nearly as good as you guys, so I'm back. Mm -hmm. um, but they're investing so that the money they get from you know, the, the uh, venture capitalists, they invest into the customer proposition mm -hmm. that's not profitable. Mm -hmm. But it's a better, you know, same day sounds better than next day. So right. You know, yeah, too much detail maybe, but. And I think the, the restaurant delivery business is a little different in terms of the margins and profitability. Mm -hmm. Like if you look at Grubhub, they are profitable, mm -hmm. or they were, um, maybe they still are. But a lot of these venture-backed DoorDash, others, I think they're just investing for customer acquisition, and they lose money on every order is my guess, and so it's very difficult. Right. But, but you know, there's a lot of money on the street backing these companies, and, you know, maybe they get through it, to a model that works, um, but it doesn't stop. By the way, a lot of venture guys make money off mm -hmm. companies that are never profitable because right. they sell them. Um, and it, it comes back to this whole Uber debate, which is brought up so much. But um, you know, Uber is taking in all this money while recording huge losses. But a lot of people are banking on the fact that, like, if self-driving cars become a thing in the not so distant future, you cut out the labor entirely. So it's interesting from i mean uber eats as well but like postmates and whatnot if that becomes a thing and uh, i don't know if that's a thought with peapod as well but um it's the part of the problem with delivery is you still have to get it to the customer at mm -hmm. at either at the door or in their house and um even with like uber eats someone has to physically do that and i think it's gonna be a long time before those robots that drive up to your curb if they right. can even allow you to eliminate the labor, the driver. I, I did actually see one that could walk up the stairs. <laughs> yeah. It was like a FedEx robot that could walk up the stairs. It will happen. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, how many years, 20 years, 10 years, I don't know. But I think uh, human beings will still be needed for most of these deliveries. Yeah, I mean, I'm actually looking more at um, bicycle delivery. Interesting. With, you know, tricycle delivery. Okay. So there's a company that we've been working with, Coaster Cycles. And they make all these pedicycles. And so, you know, I think when you're talking New York City, mm -hmm. bicycles are definitely the way to go. So I think there's like almost a low-tech way to do delivery also. So. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so kind of just wrapping up, because I know, uh, Andrew, you got about like three minutes. But um, <laughs> so you're now on your fifth startup, Sifter, right? Is that is it number five? It is for me because of um, uh, our resource control systems. 
Yeah, and I have Chowdy. Yeah. Okay. So the well, five. that's not mine. Yeah. That's my son's. But yeah. Yeah. So uh, give or take number five. Yeah. Yeah. But um, I mean, what's your guys' elevator pitch for it? For sifter. Yeah. Oh, uh, I think when I someone asked me, I say, well, we're now into food as medicine. We're both mm-hmm. very concerned about how you know people are obese or they have diseases, and a lot of it is because of the, how they eat. And uh, the medical profession just throws medications at you versus look for the right foods that meet your diet or meet your your uh, medical need. So we're going to curate hundreds of thousands of grocery products against all these um, disease states, medications, your special diets, are you a FODMAP, are you a keto diet? And then you'll be able to go to our site and enter your medical profile, and we will tell you what products you can and can't buy. Mm -hmm. And then we'll tell you what retailer you can buy them at. Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess, you know, you guys are here in the garage. You're acting as entrepreneurs and residents. For those of you listening who don't know, you basically get to hang out in the garage and, like, um, pretty much for free, right? But you're expected to kind of operate as mentors for the student entrepreneurs. Um, you got stuck with some startup called Powder Blue Media or something. Uh, not really sure about that one. <laughs> but, um, you know, what what keeps you guys going? Like, what, what has driven you to keep Sifter going and work on that and still engage in this entrepreneurial community? Yeah. yeah well, for me, first of all, I love the energy here. Um, and as I mentioned before, I love the energy of startups in general both ones I'm involved in and, and watching everybody um, because to me it is like a sport and uh, every day is a new decision. Mm-hmm. So that's what keeps me energized and why I like being here. I love seeing what you guys are doing. <laughs> I love the passion that you guys have mm-hmm. uh, for Unplugged and uh, Blue Powder. Um, powder Blue. Powder Blue. <laughs> I got that wrong earlier today, too. I get that but, a lot. You know, we should look into that. Well, it's <laughs> because I like I love skiing powder, so I always think of white okay. powder. Yeah. <laughs> but That's I love funny. the energy, and I love the passion you guys have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I look when I look at myself in the mirror. That's um. Wait, is that really how old I look? Because <laughs> I don't, I don't feel that old. You know, so um, yeah, I actually come here probably four days a week. Mm-hmm. just because I just want to, I don't like to be, I like the energy around me. Like noise doesn't bother me at all. I don't hear it. Um, and I just like that sort of energy of all you guys here, you know, working on stuff. So it's, uh, and also I'm just seeing technology, like the 3D printer today was printing a hand. And I'm like, I saw oh that. Yeah. Oh my yeah. God, I'm like, that is so cool. <laughs> I, I videotaped it. I'm like, whoa, I mean, where else would I have seen all that just in one space? Mm-hmm. It's really great. But. Yeah, um, I guess since you guys are patrons, I'm like required to say this. This episode brought to you by Peapod. No, yeah. but um, in any event, thank no, you guys. No, 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 brought to you by Sifter. <laughs> but yeah, Sifter, <laughs> yeah, yeah, not Peapod. Um, but in any event, thank you guys so much. It's been a pleasure working with you all, and uh, enjoy it. I'll enjoy it moving forward. All right, Nate, thank Thanks, you. Nate. That was fun. That's it for me. Thanks to Thomas and Andrew for what ended up being really, truly a great episode follow along with all their work with sifter moving forward and yeah as always you can follow along with us at unplugged that's u-n-p-l-u-g-g underscore d you can follow me on twitter at by nate gl until next week see ya